All listeners, prepare for boarding. This is International Lounge. Hello and welcome to International Lounge, your passport to world culture. We explore history, music, film, food, and tales from travelers. So put your tray tables down because it's going to be a smooth ride. This is Captain Abdu speaking along with my flight attendant, Brendan. Hi, everyone. Alrighty, so Brendan, we have traveled around the world and back with many adventures to tell. But uh, what do we have in store for our passengers today? Today we are going to Hellas. What is that? Also known as Greece. Ah. Greece uh, has a population of approximately 11 million people um, and has the capital of Athens. Ah, of course, named after the goddess Athena. And in case you thought Greece was not important, it actually has <laughs> sure. two was thinking. of the seven wonders of the world. Right. Um, only two? Only two, really? which is surprising because you usually assume. Yeah, I thought it had like five. Yeah. Wow. Um, so the first one mm-hmm. is, of course, the famous Colossus of Rhodes. Ah, okay. Okay. Which we all know. Um, and then the next one is kind of the mini Colossus, the Statue of Zeus at Olympia. Okay. Now, I was, I was going to say, you know, like... When when you when somebody says the seven wonders of the ancient world, you think you know them, but you really don't. You actually yeah. you're you, probably you would have thought like, oh, is uh, I don't know, the Great Wall of China is that in there? Is like I don't know, Mall of America, like all this stuff, right? <laughs> but no, it's actually all this like weird stuff because it's like stupid things like like the mausoleum. Yeah, of there's, there's always like two boring ones. Oh, there's yeah. so many boring ones. Okay, yeah. so like okay, just to rattle them off, just to for for our audience here. Okay, Great Pyramid of Giza. Yeah, we know. Right? Lighthouse of Alexandria, we kind of knew. Mm-hmm. Now, we all remember how I made the mistake of thinking that the Lighthouse of Alexandria still stood to this day, only to be disappointed that I missed it by thousands of years. <laughs> uh, I will say that there is a castle uh, built from the original mm-hmm. stones in yeah, its place. Yeah, it's very impressive. Um, now, Hanging Gardens of Babylon, you kind of know. But definitely, Mausoleum and Halicarnassus, whatever. I don't... I. It's a mausoleum. Yeah, no, First off, mausoleums are boring. Yeah, and who's totally. Halicarnassus. <laughs> right, right, right. I have no idea. Uh, Temple of Artemis at Ephesus. Uh, yeah, again, that's just one of the one of the less. Like, can we swap it? out? Is it too late to swap it out for something better? You know what? I, I don't think it's too late because I feel like a lot of people, a lot of people want to ex- expand these wonders to be non-Eurocentric. Who's, who's doing? Who's who's this? Uh, council. There, there, there are all types of organizations working. Who decided these, this though? For these things, who decided this? The seven wonders oh, of the ancient world. That I don't know. That would be that's that'd be interesting. It's probably Aristotle. Or oh something. yeah, sure, sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> must have been, must have been. Because yeah. there's seven wonders of the ancient world, and there's like seven wonders of the modern world. That's like super. Those boring. are so dumb. Because yeah. it's, it's like, like the uh, San Francisco Bridge. Yeah, it's like Eiffel Tower. Yeah, like, yeah. Okay, like fine. Yeah, like, whatever. Like, like Times Square is probably in there or something stupid. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, most of the Wonders of the World are kind of disappointing, but uh, Greece is home to two of them, so that's pretty good. Classes of Rhodes, I think, is one of the more impressive ones. Um, yeah, it's it's very romantic to think about uh, think about the Colossus straddling the harbor. Yeah. But the historians believe that actually wasn't the case. They believe it was just on a pedestal. A bit uh, inland. Okay. So it takes a bit of the luster out of it, but sure. I think it's my favorite wonder. Uh, so let's um, let's kick off this episode, Brendan, with of course a brief time of history. So 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 tell us where where this the the, the story of Greece begins. All right. Well, um, maybe it's not exactly where it began, but we're going to start in three thousand BC. Okay. 
Uh, let's talk about three remarkable civilizations. Uh, the Cycladic civilization, mm-hmm. the Minoans, sure. who are from Crete, and the Mycenaeans from the Greek mainland. Uh, the Minoans were Europe's first advanced civilization, uh, and they were named after King Minos, who was the mythical ruler of Crete and the stepfather of the Minotaur. Interesting. So if he is the step... Okay, well, he's the stepfather of the Minotaur. Mm-hmm. So would he have married a bull? Well, or the human? Oh, yeah. <laughs> if he's who the stepfather, who who? Yeah. he did not conceive the Minotaur or contribute to the conception of. Well, I, I feel like um, uh, it's probably the bull. Do you think he had relations? I think I think he. Uh, well, I mean, he didn't actually have relations with the bulls. Well, if they were, ma- well, if they were married. Yeah, but surely uh, it's only natural uh, for uh, love to flourish. Uh, of course, on a romantic Greek island such as Crete. Right. Well, let's move on to the uh, Mycenaeans and what right. they were what they were doing. Um, so suddenly, around fifteen hundred BC, the Mycenaeans gained control which coincided with the volcanic explosion on the island of Thera. So, so this is important. So, um, well, the island of Thera, of course, now known as Santorini. Mm-hmm. So there's a big shift now in, in the Aegean Sea. So the, this, this, this shift of power happens suddenly, but happens to occur at the same time as this cataclysmic event. So this actually has a major role in the events uh, forthcoming. Mm-hmm. Around 1220 BC, uh, the Mycenaeans laid siege to and destroyed the city of Troy. The Mycenaean world was overwhelmed by a vast migration of sea peoples, as the ancients called them, who swept through the Middle East and the Mediterranean. And, and you know, this this comes up time and time again when we when we talk about ancient Egypt, we talk about ancient Middle East. I mean, these this these sea peoples keep coming up, and it was this mystery: who are the sea people? But the thought is, you know, after this cataclysmic event, there was a lot of uh, displaced people and they sort of um, would then sort of travel to these other areas and lay siege uh, to these other lands. So they banded together. That's the thought Mm. of one of many theories. Um, After that, uh, Greece was plunged into a 400 year dark age and knowledge of the Minoan and Mycenaean civilizations slipped into dim memory. That's crazy. They were lost. They were were lost at this point. Speaking of lost things, um, this brings us uh, to a really fascinating topic here okay we're talking about the Aegean Sea we're talking about uh, lost civilizations so how could we not talk about of course the lost city of Atlantis so where does this all come from okay so generally considered to be a fictional island mentioned within an allegory of the hubris of nations in Plato's works Timaeus and Critias okay Critias proceeds to tell the story of Solon's journey to Egypt where here's the story of Atlantis. And essentially, the story is basically about um, uh, this, this very advanced civilization of, of Atlanteans uh, in a battle with the Athenians. And the Athenians are actually able to win this battle. So really, the story isn't so much about how super amazing the Atlanteans are and having laser guns and all this crazy stuff you hear. No, it's really just about how the, it's a story to promote how uh, the Athenians were this great powerful force that they defeated the Atlanteans. And that's really what the point of the story is and to talk about Plato's like ideal society and like, so essentially that was the purpose of it. So it sort of got, kind of got, um, the, the story sort of evolves over time, but that was really what it's actually about. 
Um, now, there are some things that he mentions um, that give us a clue of where Atlantis is and when these events could have taken place. So, uh, one thing mentioned, they're saying, oh, no, it's, it's beyond the Pillars of Hercules. So, the Pillars of Hercules generally uh, considered to be the Strait of Gibraltar. So that's sort of that narrow passage of the Mediterranean to get out into the Atlantic Ocean. So that's why they thought, like, oh, is this in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean? Or maybe. The other thing is, is the timing of it. So they say it's like 9,000 years prior to the writing of the Timaeus and Critias. Now the thought was, well, if this was translated from ancient Egypt texts, is it possible that they meant lunar years instead of solar years? So what does that mean? That means that really they're talking about 9,000 months which, interestingly enough, puts it around the time of, get this, the volcanic eruption in Santorini. Wow. So this places Atlantis very possibly in Santorini. Not only that, Brendan, are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. Are you ready? I don't think you're ready. Yeah. The way Plato describes the island of Atlantis is that it's this uh, circular island with concentric circles, right? Now, the original name of Santorini is Strongili, which means circular, because it actually was a circular island. Mm. Pre-eruption, um, it was a circular island, and then after, after the volcanic explosion, then uh, all that remains was just sort of that outer ring, uh, which you have that, that caldera formation in the classic, uh, what you now know as Santorini. So a lot of evidence is pointing towards Santorini being the true location. Mm, I believe that's also, isn't that the uh, consensus among uh, serious historians? If you only want to include serious historians, sure. I mean, <laughs> if that's what you're about, that's fine. It's interesting that uh, the story of Atlantis was essentially Athenian propaganda. Yeah, it's, it, that's the thing. So it's, like, it's weird the way it evolved uh, over time because um, the, the, the way we perceive Atlantis now has taken on this whole other life so much bigger than what it actually was. Um, so, so, well, you say that, but what what are our maybe our um, what are our non professional historians think? Sure, sure. So, our beloved nineteenth um, uh, century amateur scholar uh, Ignatius L. Donnelly uh, beautifully misinterprets Plato's uh, narrative uh, in his uh, book Atlantis: The Antediluvian World. So that's pre-flood uh, world. So. He postulates that Atlantis was the region where man first rose uh, from a state of barbarism to civilization. Okay, he says that his people emigrated to the Gulf of Mexico, the Mississippi River, the Amazon River, the Pacific coast of South America, the Mediterranean, the west coast of Europe, and Africa. Hmm. Um, now, he says that the Garden of Eden, the gardens of Hesperides, the Elysian Fields, all these other like mythical enchanted sort of gardens uh, is where is where it took place in Atlantis. Okay, basically it represented a universal memory of a great land where early mankind dwelt for ages uh, in peace and happiness. Okay, um, he he actually he goes on to say that the gods and goddesses of the ancient Greeks, the Phoenicians, the Hindus, Scandinavians, were simply the kings, queens, and heroes of Atlantis. Um, and then the acts attributed to them in mythology are confused recollection of real historical events. Um, and the mythology of Egypt and Peru represented the original religion of Atlantis, which was sun worship. Uh, easy. Uh, that's cool. uh, that's I, so I, I can always fall back on sun worship. That's yeah, always an yeah. easy one, right? Uh, I think I worship the sun. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I don't know. Uh, the oldest uh, 
colony formed by Atlantis was probably Egypt. Uh, and they're saying that he says that a few persons escaped on ships and on rafts and carried to the nations east and west um, after this cataclysmic event, um, and the, which had survived to their own time uh, in the flood and deluge legends of the different nations of the old and new world. So all these, all these like flood legends are all going back to Atlantis. Now, I bet you're wondering, it's like, wow, how did he extrapolate so much of this from uh, Plato's Timaeus and Critias? He didn't. He just said whatever he felt like. He made it up. That's all that this was. Yeah. So all of this like mythology. So when you talk, if you talk to somebody like, oh yeah, this land is super interesting. All this like, you know, where there's a this remarkable civilization with jetpacks and you know, the iPhones and they they spread around the world. It's like no, it's just some guy in like the 19th century that said it. Like yeah. Plato didn't say any of that stuff. Plato's thing was super boring. Yeah, like, it, it's weird how that type of stuff filters down to like. Uh, cultural conscious mm-hmm. and people just sort of like think well yeah. well I mean clearly Atlantis was yeah. special but like no. most of what we know is just like some guy wrote yeah. something and like and, and some I, crazy guy spread it and I think his, his, his postulations do come from I think he said he has some sort of like a psychic experience so all this all this this, this primary source of it is like his psychic experience that he writes down and I'm like, wait, so that's nothing. This is all nothing. It makes you wonder what else is, is like that in, oh, our, yeah. in our culture. That's the thing. I feel like a lot of like some of these like mystical and mysterious things, you're like, you think it goes back like thousands and thousands of years. No, it's usually just some like weird like psychic person from like nineteen fifty or something. Like when you talk like all the like the when people talk about like, oh, you only use like ten percent of your brain. Mm-hmm. People want Atlantis to yeah. be real. It's like if Atlantis was proven to, like, never be real, like, yeah. I feel like a lot of people would just be, like, really upset. Yeah, I guess people... Because it's almost, like, real now. Yeah, it's it's like the, the the myth has far exceeded what anything that was that was intended to be about. And I guess it's just people, like, yearn for this, like, unifying, like, land. I mean, at the same time, like, a lot of our world is slipping under water and, like, nobody cares. Oh, yeah, when it actually happens. Oh, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe uh, Ignatius Donnelly actually had a premonition of what the future is. Oh, that's, that's an interesting theory. Fascinating. Um, And another thing that's crazy about all this Atlanta stuff is that, you know, all these fantastical tales that come out of it. Is that that's like not even good enough for some people that they actually then take it to the next level. Then they even talk about other lands like uh, Lemuria, mm. which they say is an even greater civilization that even predates Atlantis. It's like, guys, we haven't even figured out the Atlantis thing yet. You're on to Lemuria. Not only that, then people go beyond Lemuria onto Mew, which is mm. it predates Lemuria. Right, right. It's like, how far back are we going to go? And then people think, like, well, I mean, like, humans didn't do this, clearly. Oh, yeah. It was like, obviously. Like, yeah. Yeah, aliens. And the other thing that's, that is bothersome about it is like they always say a whole like oh ancient Egypt got all their technology from this like from the Atlanteans. It's like guys, can we just give the Egyptians some credit? It's like they would rather give credit to a fictional land that doesn't exist that you have no evidence of, rather than a place that does exist that you can Which go we have to that you actually have evidence of. Still see today. Why? Yeah. Why is it more compelling? To have this like made up place is it just they don't want the Egyptians to have the credit? Is that it's racism? Ah, it's always it's always comes just, back to that. It's really just what binds yes. us all together. Sure, racism. Well, we can all be united under the um, hate agenda of Ignatius Donnelly, and we thank him for that. 
Now uh, let's let's move on to some other uh, great writers uh, beyond the, uh, the the works of Ignatius Donnelly. <laughs> yeah, let's let's talk about um, one of Greece's uh, most treasured uh, uh, cultural icons, Homer. Uh, the Homeric poems were first developed by nameless bards, whose recitations were accompanied by music. Uh, the first Homeric poem would be the Iliad. This was written in the 8th century BC, and is a story of a few days' action in the 10th and final year of the Trojan War, which in its tales of heroic exploits recalls the golden age of the Mycenaeans. Excavations in the late 19th century by Heinrich Schliemann... Yeah, this guy's huge. This is the guy. Yeah. ...uncovered many Troys of several periods. But the layer known as Troy 7A clearly suffered violent destruction in about 1220 BC. Next we have the Odyssey. Uh, this begins after the Trojan War and follows the adventures of Odysseus, who takes 10 years to return to his island home of Ithaca. Oh, yeah. So, so actually, I, I, I want to talk about, um, you know, when, so the, the writings of the Iliad and the Odyssey um, actually have a, a significant role in uh, literature uh, and in actually human consciousness. Now, it's going to sound a little crazy, but some uh, psychologists sort of postulate... Um, that these these uh, writings represent uh, this concept of bicameralism. Okay, so it's essentially it's a hypothesis in psychology that argues that the human mind once assumed a state in which cognitive functions were divided between one part of the brain, which appears to be speaking, and a second part uh, which uh, listens and obeys. Uh, and this was the normal state of the human mind as recently as three thousand years ago. Okay, and the idea is that this is exemplified. Uh, in the commands given to characters in ancient epics, uh, but also the muses of Greek mythology, which sang the poems. Literally, the ancients say they heard muses as the direct source of their music and poetry. So in the Iliad, no mention is made of any kind of cognitive process, such as introspection, um, and there's no apparent indication that the author was self-aware. Whereas in the Odyssey, there's a big shift where it actually shows profoundly different kind of mentality and basically this is an early form of consciousness. So this is crazy. This actually, the idea is that basically people hear voices in their head. So when you think of your consciousness, you hear, you have a voice in your head, but you know it's you. But back then they would have these voices saying, you know, when they're doing their tasks during the day and they would interpret that as actually voices of the gods. Mm. So that's, and that's the concept of bicameralism, this sort of, um, this God controlling your body and the actions that you do, and it's manifested, or the way it's represented is actually in the Iliad, and you see a difference, a shift in the Odyssey. What do you think of that? Interesting. Um, you said this is a hypothesis, so yeah. what does the psychological communi community uh, believe about this hypothesis? Oh, Because to yeah. me, yeah. it seems a little strange to uh, that this would, this would be considered a, uh, a real phenomenon. I mean, most of your thoughts throughout the day are mundane, right? Yeah. They're, yeah, but I that, have to poop. Yeah, uh, sure. No, but that's the idea is that even those mundane thoughts are the gods, or the gods tell. That's why they're building like massive temples, and their whole life is dedicated to the gods because they're literally dictating every aspect of their life. Mm. Now, um, now a lot of people say that this has been. Vastly debunked. 
<laughs> Sounds like it. Now, uh, but I think that it... The, Although you were very convincing. It's very convincing. <laughs> but I think the idea is that, that it was such a well-written hypothesis, there is some value to it, but it's just... I feel like if someone told me that and I and I didn't, you know, I, I just didn't know anything of the world, I'd be like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, uh, that's fine. If somebody said, oh, yeah, there was like all these papers and everything, so I was like, yeah, okay, fine. It's fine. <laughs> uh, but it's super interesting, and it's just that they always use the Iliad and the Odyssey as an, an example in literature. Have you read these works? I have actually purchased a copy of the Odyssey, and... Almost read it, yes. Mm. You want to read the Iliad first, of course. <laughs> sure, of course. Yeah. yeah, I just like to work backwards. I actually was going to read it backwards. <laughs> oh, yeah. The in the, yeah, in the original yes. Greek. Yes, right. of course. Uh, <laughs> all right, Brendan. Now, beyond the uh, age of Homer uh, brings us next to the Golden Age of Greece. Okay, so that's from the 6th to the 4th centuries BC. So this is a, a surge in the political, intellectual, and artistic activity centering around city-states, all right? So you got major players like Euripides and Sophocles writing tragedies. You got Aristophanes who's writing comedies. He's a he's a total riot. I mean, was uh was the comedy actually funny? No, it was not actually. <laughs> yeah. uh, much like this program. Now, um, <laughs> Greek tragedy, interestingly, has its roots in uh, fertility rituals celebrating the life and death of Dionysus the god of the vine. Uh, He's sort of like the the party god, right? Mm. Uh, Now, because goats were sacrificed in his honor, the ritual was called tragodia, a goat song. So actually the word tragedy comes from the Greek word for goat song. So that's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Around 520 BC, uh, Thespis was the first person to ever appear on stage as an actor playing a character in a play. So prior to this, it was just like a chorus singing, mm. and he sort of breaks out on his own and does his own thing. That's kind of, imagine watching that for the first time. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I mean, was it like a one-man show? No, he, the... he, he busts out and does his own thing, I think. Oh. The way I imagined it was that the chorus is singing, and he's like, you know what? I'm doing my own thing. And he That's kinda, like a sister act? Yeah, I imagine this is sort of a sister act moment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they're like, what? Well, I just, I just you know, I, I was just thinking of like a one-man play, and, you know, those are always like no, I think they still had. I think the chorus was still there, but then he start. He does. He kind of does a moment where he has his own thing. Then they start to actually later on introduce. Well, now there's two actors and there's a dialogue. So, so what uh, made total uh, game changer? How do you think Thespis? How was he? In, why was he inspired to do that? Well, probably because they're telling a story and they're like, wait, when things happen, people like talk to each other. And he's like, that's just like how things look. <laughs> That's probably the exact conversation. <laughs> well, that's what I would have thought. Like, wouldn't it have seemed more natural for there to be an actor? Like, if mm. you're telling a story, because when you describe a story, you're like, oh, and then, you know, that lady said this to me, and yeah. you do you say what they said. I mean, I feel like it wouldn't have been that uh, astounding to an audience because you're always doing that when you're speaking to people, right? Yeah. Like you are acting out how sure. someone was uh, at a wine party or whatever. They're sure. Doing. I, I don't know what you that do thing. when you're. Uh, Tributes to Dionysus, but um, surely that uh, would be the uh, rational thought. Yeah. Uh, now, um, during this golden age, uh, Pericles became leader of Athens in 461 BC. He moved the treasury from Delos to the Acropolis using funds to construct grander temples upon it, including the majestic Parthenon. Mm. Okay. The so Parthenon is, of course, atop a hill known as the Acropolis. Okay, so what is the Acropolis? Well, it's a hill in Athens, uh, and there's a complex of 
many structures, including the Parthenon, okay? But the Acropolis itself was home to one of the earliest known settlements in Greece as early as 5000 BC. In Mycenaean times, around 1500 BC, uh, it was fortified with these large walls, which can still be seen today, which enclosed a royal palace and temples to the cult of Athena. Um, now, always on these tours and things, they talk about how remarkable this, uh, they did the, the, the proportions of, uh, of the structure of the Parthenon, of this magic ratio that, um, so when you look at it straight on, it looks like they're straight columns and straight lines, but really they're slightly curved and it's so exciting. It's not exciting, okay? It's actually really <laughs> boring and I couldn't see it. I struggled to see this magic illusion. I was like, I don't know, maybe they're curved. Maybe they're not. I don't really think about it or note. I can't see straight lines. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's your problem. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, the part that on itself doesn't seem, it's, it's never it's never stuck out to me as one of uh, something of great interest, like the Colosseum. Let's talk about sort of the role of, of the Acropolis and the Parthenon itself, because sort of by, by the 9th century BC, uh, the, the, the Acropolis itself was the heart of Athens, sheltering... Um, its principal public buildings, which remain there until about 510 BC. But then what happens is the Oracle of Delphi gets involved, as usual, right? Mm. Uh, and orders that the Acropolis should remain the province of the gods unoccupied by humans. So the reason it's kind of boring is because they kicked out the people mm. around that time and then they just, you know, left it for the gods. And what are they? Yeah, the gods. Uh, so we can all blame the Oracle of Delphi uh, for the, for this blunder, right? But it's actually interesting the way uh, the Acropolis uh, changes its roles throughout time. And it's always sort of the sign of the time. So like later on in history, it's used by the Turks as their... Um, as their commander headquarters. Uh, there's actually so, so the Turks didn't they didn't heed the warning. The world. Oh, they didn't give it. They didn't give a crap about the Royal Delphi. Uh, nor do I. Now, uh, now uh, there's one interesting story where sort of uh, they they would keep gunpowder uh, in the uh, in the Parthenon, which is always a great idea, right? Uh, and now when they had this battle with the Venetians in 1687, uh, they. Uh, <laughs> They, uh, the Venetians sort of, uh, sort of uh, blast their cannons uh, into the Parthenon, igniting the, the gunpowder, and they blast the roof off the Parthenon. Mm. Um, so, but it, it sort of it took the, the Parthenon took on many roles throughout history. Where it was, you know, it would be, you know, in this example, it was used uh, for military use, or it would be used as a church, or it would be used as a mosque. So, always throughout history, it changes its role and what its function is. But it's always remained as a significant part of Athens. Regardless of what its role is, it has uh, stood the test of time. Uh, now, let's talk about a few other structures at the Acropolis. So, Brendan, if you could tell us a little bit about the uh, the Elgin Marbles. Yeah, so the Elgin Marbles are very controversial. Uh, in 1801, Lord Elgin, a British ambassador, obtained permission from the Turks to erect scaffolding, excavate, and remove stones with inscriptions. He interpreted this concession as a license to make off with almost all of the base reliefs from the Parthenon's frieze. Most of its pedimental structures in a caryatid from the Erecteon, all of which he later sold to the British Museum. Oh, okay. this guy, he, he even just Lord Elgin, he just yeah, sounds he just so yeah. menacing. He sounds right? like a, uh, a Sith. Oh, he, oh God. He, he oh, does. yeah, he does. He, he is a Sith Lord. I remember when I first heard about the Elgin marbles, I, I foolishly, literally thought there was marbles, like actual, like, Play marbles. <laughs> I was later uh, surprised as to the how grand they truly were. I, yeah, I would imagine that's very surprising, considering uh, 
Greece is just full of uh, marble statues. <laughs> sure, surely, surely. Um, now, um, well, while there perhaps were justifications for elegant actions at the time, uh, not least the Turks' tendency to use Parthenon stones in their lime kilns, his pilfering was controversial even then. The Greeks hoped that the long-awaited completion of the new Acropolis Museum would create the perfect opportunity for the British Museum to bow to pressure and return the Parthenon its marbles. The British Museum's argument is that to return them would be to set a precedent that would empty virtually every museum Ooh. in the world. What do you think of that? But, but you know what? Do you think that's a, do you think that's a, what do you think of that argument? So they're saying, well, if we return the marbles, then we got to return all this stuff to Egypt. We got to return all this stuff to every other place that we stole stuff from. I think that that is um, there's some validity to the argument. Uh-huh. I just want to say that I'm kind of glad that like the British have them. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, because like, oh, so at least for Egypt stuff, I was like, yeah. probably a lot of that stuff would have just uh, crumbles to dust. Well, well, we saw what happened in, in Egypt after the recent uh, quote-unquote revolution yeah. where a lot of the antiquities were yeah. looted. They're now on the black market. Same thing in Iraq. Yeah. So, um, was Lord Elgin actually a force for good? No. He was not. No. Because, <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because... Okay, it's one thing to, let's say, you go in, the British go into Greece, or they go into um, Egypt, or they go into these other places, and they're excavating, and they, they take these things, they're like, okay, that's not cool, they did steal it, but they actually, by definition, stole it. Whereas this is a little sneakier, because they had all this documentation saying we're not going to steal it, and then steal it. It's very British. If you're going to steal, you better just steal it. Mm. Just steal it. To my face. Right. Okay? Don't say you're not... Don't don't even bring up stealing if you're going to steal it. Just steal it and don't talk about it. That's how stealing works. Right. Okay, now, Brendan, let's circle back to this, this golden age. Okay? So the golden age of Athens under Pericles saw the birth of Western philosophy under the towering figures of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, oh, man. three musketeers. Oh, boy. Big boys. So let's start with Socrates. Mm-hmm. Um, he is, of course, famous for the Socratic method. He asked for definitions of familiar concepts such as piety and justice. His technique was to expose the ignorance that hid behind people's use of such terms while acknowledging his own similar ignorance. The Delphic Oracle proclaimed no. that no man was wiser than Socrates. Here we go with the Oracle. He explained this by saying wisdom lies in knowing how little one really knows. Ooh. Socrates was tried for impiety and corrupting the youth and was sentenced to death. The city gave him the option of naming another penalty, probably expecting him to choose exile. Instead, Socrates answered that if he was to get what he deserved, he should be maintained for life at public expense. At this, the death penalty was confirmed, but even then it was not to be imposed for two months, with the tacit understanding that Socrates would escape. Oh, man. Instead, Socrates argued that it was wrong for a student to dis- disobey even an unjust law, and in the company of his friends, he drank a cup of hemlock. That's crazy. So he, he had the chance to escape. They gave him the opportunity, all the opportunity in the world to escape, but he stood by his principles. What do you, what do you think about that? Uh, I would not do that. No, oh, no, yeah. I know. Absolutely not. I I say, if take... I can escape, I will, I will do anything. I will break all my principles to escape and to stay alive. <laughs> I, would, I would, yeah, I would take the Galileo approach, which is just to recant... Okay. And forget the whole thing happened. Yeah, that's fine. I don't care. <laughs> Whatever. Everyone's trying to be a hero right now. <laughs> no, no, certainly um, not. Certainly not. Well, let's talk about um, some more heroes. Uh, we have Plato. 
He was a student of Socrates. He believed that men possess immortal souls separate from their mortal bodies. Knowledge, he believed, was a reflection of what our souls already know. We do not gain knowledge from experience, rather by using our reasoning capacity to draw more closely to the realm of our souls. The true objects of knowledge are not transient material things of this world, which are only reflections of a higher essence that Plato called forms, which are objects of pure thinking, cut off from our experience. I don't know. I'll be honest, I'm not buying it. I think he's leaning a lot on souls. He's he's too into, like, there's a perfect version of something, and we always see, like, the corrupted version of it. Mm. I, I feel that's very, like, naive. Like, I don't know. what. So there's, like, a perfect form of a some concept or thing. I don't think so. Right. No, it's just, things are just there. Okay, the last of the big three thinkers... The big Aristotle. Yes, of course, the uh, great ancestor of uh, the mighty Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah, direct line. Right <laughs> uh, Aristotle did not believe that the soul was of a substance separate from the body, mm-hmm. rather that it was an aspect of the body. Instead of Plato's inward-looking view, Aristotle sought to explain the physical world and human society from the viewpoint of an outside observer. Oh, interesting. See, I, I think I'm more in line with, with Aristotle's thing. He's more, more of a scientific approach. Uh, I think of the three, he, he was more on the right track. Yeah, he, he was getting there. I think that um, overall, though, we've, we've hyped up these three thinkers a yeah, lot yeah. in the Western tradition. Because, I mean, if you, if you look at the things they postulated, like, it's all wrong. It's all wrong, and it's all kind of useless. Like, what are we doing with it? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, uh, though, though uh, we, we do see further for having uh, stood on the shoulders of giants. Right. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's not all just, uh, you know, postulating uh, philosophical theories in your togas, okay? Uh, things get a little bit uh, more grim in Greece, uh, because what comes next is, of course, the Persian Wars. Okay, Athens uh, supports a rebellion in the, the Persian colonies of Asia Minor. Uh, which then leads to the uh, Persians to destroy that city, uh, which in turn then leads a uh, 25,000-person uh, Persian army led by Darius in 490 BC, but was defeated uh, when an Athenian force of 10,000 uh, outmaneuvered it in the Battle of Marathon, famous battle. Uh, now, in, in the Battle of Marathon, um, Essentially, uh, one, one famous story is that uh, Philippides, a Greek messenger, was sent uh, from Marathon to Athens to announce that the Persians had been defeated uh, in the battle, and he ran, you guessed it, 26.2 miles and exclaimed, we have won, before collapsing and dying. Now, this is, of course, where we get um, the, the distance of our modern-day marathons of 26.2 miles. And if, if I were to run a marathon, I would, of course, uh, collapse and die uh, much like the great Philippides. Making you a hero. <laughs> certainly, certainly. What did uh, Philippides think when they asked him to uh, to go that far? Was he like, what do you mean? <laughs> I was like, sorry? <laughs> Why don't I just, you know, pass that message on to the next town and then he can run to the next town <laughs> yeah. and then we just kind of do a little game of telephone. It, the, the message was just, we have won. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't very Who complicated. Would they found out, like, eventually? <laughs> yeah, they would have figured it out for sure, so... Uh, was not worth uh, risking his life for. But, nonetheless, uh, he did make history. Uh, Now, um, afterwards, uh, Darius uh, dies in 485 BC, and his son Xerxes, now that's that's a powerful name. That's a great name. That's, yeah, that's that's a leader. 
Uh, he resumed the quest to conquer Greece with a massive land and sea invasion for BC. Now, famously, the uh, Spartan 300-soldier army held at the pass at Thermopylae, which is the main passage into central Greece from the north. This is famously depicted in the film 300, 300 Spartans stopping the passage of uh, the Persians. Now, what comes next um, are the Peloponnesian Wars. So the Peloponnesian League was a military coalition governed by uh, Sparta. Uh, they had political dominance in the Peloponnesian region. And then Athens, uh, growing in imperialism, threatened the, uh, the Spartans. Uh, and there was a sort of struggle in power for about 30 years. Uh, but at the end, the Peloponnesian War left Sparta the supreme power in Greece. Um, over time, uh, the Macedonians come in and establish a, an empire. So in about 338 BC, Philip II marches into Greece uh, and they defeat this army of Athenians and Thebans. He founded the city of Pella as his capital, which lured teachers, artists, and intellectuals to his court, among them being Aristotle and Euripides. Uh, so this is interesting. He has these, these major players, these great minds of the time, to form what was then known as the Academy. Mm. Uh, so one of the first great centers of learning in uh, the golden age of Greece. Right. Uh, pretty fascinating. Pretty fascinating stuff. Um, now, uh, sadly, Philip was assassinated, and his 20-year-old son, little Alex, uh, otherwise known as Alexander the Great, became king in 336 B.C. In 334 B.C., Alexander the Great marched his army of 40,000 men into Asia Minor. After a few bloody battles with the Persians, Alexander succeeded in conquering Syria, Palestine, and Egypt, Damn. where he was proclaimed Pharaoh and founded the city of Alexandria. Oh, yeah. I didn't know he was Pharaoh. Yeah, they actually made him a Pharaoh. Wow. During this campaign, Alexander slept with the Iliad under his pillow. Oh, I see you just asked for inspiration, right? Mm -hmm. Great, uh, great uh, military uh, accomplishments there. So if you had to sleep with one book under your pillow, what would it be? Oh, um... I'd probably choose the Iliad. You would choose yeah. as well. Yeah. So you're akin so you're to Alexander the Great. Yeah. That is... Um, yeah, I, you know, I think it's... Uh, you know, you wake up uh, middle of the night, you want some inspiration. Some sure. inspiration. Um, epic poems yeah. are... Uh, I guess I would pick a very boring book to help me fall back asleep. Well, yeah, I mean, oh, that's, I guess yeah, that's, that's true. Well, yeah. <laughs> certainly. Yeah. I mean, that's a real reason. <laughs> certainly, certainly. Yeah. Indeed, indeed, yes. I would not want any of the Goosebumps uh, novels, as that would, of course, keep me up all night in a panic. Um, so, so, which one would you choose? <laughs> um, I don't know. Uh, you know, something about some like like book on like taxes or something. How they just kind of drift <laughs> off to sleep, right? His ambition was to conquer the world, which he believed ended at the sea beyond India. But his now-aged soldiers grew wary, and in 324 BC, forced him to return to Mesopotamia, where he settled in Babylon. The following year, at the age of 33, he fell ill suddenly and died. Now, so this is interesting. So, you know, when you think about Alexander the Great, you're like, oh, this is the greatest conqueror, you know, of his age. But he was only 33 when he died. So this yeah. is like when, like, so when I hear about, like, some, like, millennial guy that's, like, 30-something, he's, like, not ready for things like you can't get married or like have kids or like have like a real job or they're not ready it's like dude like outside of the great like conquer the world like 
when he was your age. Like, yeah. how bad do you feel? Right but, now? Yeah, I didn't. I, I never knew he uh, he died from an illness. Yeah, it seemed like you um, think it would be like a battle, it would right? Be a battle, yeah. yeah, it's always like that. It's never what. It, it's like how Al Capone like goes to jail for like tax evasion. Oh yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's one of those. Right. Things, yeah. That's, right? that's exactly what it's like. <laughs> yeah. Um. So interesting. Uh, Alexander was asked on his deathbed uh, to whom to bequeath his empire, and Alexander replied, "To the strongest." Okay, a bit vague, <laughs> sure. So who who would you bequeath your empire to? My if I had an empire, yeah. um, I would actually say to the weakest. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Because then if you do, then it's sort of like your legacy still lives on. It's like, oh man, that was really great when like you know Andrew the Great conquered right. and like it all went downhill from there. Mm-hmm. You do to the strongest. It's sort of like well, you know, and they're still going good. They're still going strong. Like you're kind of gonna get forgotten about. So, so you're, you're sabotaging the future. Sabotaging yes. the future, yes. There's yeah. a selfishness from beyond the grave. <laughs> That's a great deathbed. <laughs> this is why I, I never became the great of anything. So <laughs> Now, uh, let's switch gears a bit oh, into our uh, <laughs> next topic. Um, we're going to talk a bit about the uh, Antikythera mechanism. Oh, now tell us about that. Um the Antikythera mechanism uh, is the world's first analog computer. Sort of, right. <laughs> which was used to predict astronomical positions and eclipses for calendar and astrological always. purposes. Always. Always. I love that. It's yeah. always for that. It's like, yeah. how much like calendar and counting and days <laughs> and star alignments were they really... Yeah, they're they're bad on the constellations and stuff. Yeah, I'm like, I don't need to know when an eclipse is. Like, I actually don't ever have to know when there's an eclipse. Right. But for some reason, the ancient world was obsessed with creating these devices to do this. Yeah. Uh, and the mechanism is a complex clockwork uh, mechanism composed of at least 30 meshing bronze that's gears. That's pretty interesting. That's a, that's a lot of gears for, yeah. for that time. So, the mechanism itself was discovered on May 17th, 1902, among the wreckage retrieved from uh, a shipwreck off the coast of the Greek island of Antikythera. Surely, surely. It was believed to have been constructed as early as 205 BC. Uh, like, basically, all cool knowledge, mm-hmm. uh, it was lost. Of course. Uh, the knowledge of, course. of how to, how to uh, build this was lost in antiqui- at some point in antiquity. And technological works approaching its complexity and workmanship did not appear again until the development of mechanical astronomical clocks in Europe in the 14th century. So it's cool. It totally sounds cool. Like, but it doesn't really do all that much. And I feel like that's where a lot of these, like, a lot of these ancient artifacts, you know, they always have like, oh, there was this, you know, ancient uh, batteries and all these other, like, advanced technology in the ancient world. But it sort of just does, like, 0.001% of what, you know, the real thing in our modern time does. Right. I'm not super duper impressed. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was thinking like if you, uh, if you had, if you were to go, uh, face to face with the Antikythera mechanism Mm. creator, um, do you think that you would be able to produce something, uh, more technologically, uh, impressive? No, absolutely not. Because if I was, Transplanted into the ancient world, I could not do most things. I couldn't build a fire. I couldn't carve anything or use a hammer or a, a crude stone blunt instrument. So what would your profession be if you were transported back back 
into uh, ancient Greece. Oh, nothing. They would just use my skin for warmth. <laughs> that's all I'd be good for. <laughs> that's, all that's really as much use as you'd get out of me in the ancient world. Yeah. Um, well, fortunately, we had some very capable uh, craftsmen <laughs> and engineers back then. <laughs> certainly, certainly. Yeah. Certainly, indeed. Um, now, um, now, it was interesting. When I saw the Antikythera mechanism in the Archaeology Museum in Athens... They, they had this, like, 3D video of it, like, kind of explaining the discovery of it. It's all cool, and you wear these 3D glasses. But, like, they didn't really, like, utilize that 3D technology very well because all it was was just, like, a guy sitting at, a, like, a desktop computer, but, like, in 3D. <laughs> like, okay, like, what? Like, why is this interesting? Like, why did this need to be in 3D? Yeah. Uh, but nonetheless, it was a, a fascinating journey through the uh, mundane life of... <laughs> Of that one man and his uh, his desk job. So, uh, Brandon, let us move on to uh, Roman Greece, okay? So, around uh, 146 BC to 330 AD, so spanning a, a long period of time. Uh, basically, the Romans defeated uh, Macedon in 168 BC at the, the Battle of uh, Pydna. And as the Roman uh, province of Achaea... Uh, now Greece was known as, um, Greece experienced an unprecedented period of peace for almost 300 years, known as the Pax Romana. Uh, so interesting, so, so this mighty Greek empire gets now reduced to a province, mm. now known as the name of Achaea. Um, now, uh, the Romans adopted uh, most aspects of Hellenistic culture. They were fascinated with it, from its dress to its gods. You know, they just basically changed the names of the gods, but they, they retained much of the same personalities and the stories. And um, they're basically spreading its unifying traditions throughout the empire. Uh, the Romans were also the first to refer to the Hellenese as Greeks, uh, derived from the word Graecos, which is the name of the prehistoric tribe um, of that area. Uh, and the Romans had always venerated Greek art, literature, philosophy. Aristocratic Romans sent their offspring to go to school in Athens. That's pretty cool. Wow. So sort of like... Yeah. If you were of the upper class in Rome, you'd send your kids away to uh, to Athens to study. So, is that where Greek life comes from? Is that why colleges have a big Greek influence? France and sororities? Oh, that I never thought about that. No, that is could, that it? could be why. It's definitely not why, but I mean, it could be why. <laughs> it's possible. I wonder how uh, prevalent um, butt chugging was uh, in uh, ancient Athens at that time. Now, uh, by the uh, first century AD, uh, Greece had become a tourist destination for well-to-do Romans. They went to Athens and Rose to study literature and philosophy and toured the country to see temples with their paintings and sculptures. It's interesting. It, ancient tourism. It's so weird to think about ancient tourists. Yeah. So there's like ancient what? tour guides and like, yeah, yeah. wow, that's crazy. Yeah. And they have like gift shops? <laughs> gift <laughs> like, shops and souvenirs. Yeah. Wow. Now, let's move on to the Byzantine Empire. Uh, now, the, the Pax Romana began to crumble in AD 250 when the Goths invaded Greece. Uh, in uh, 324, in an effort to resolve the conflict in the region, the Roman Emperor Constantine transferred the capital of the empire from Rome to Byzantium, which was then renamed Constantinople, of course, present-day Istanbul. We all know the uh, They Might Be Giants uh, hit single. Uh, now, um, Constantine's other act... Uh, with uh, decisive consequences, was to legalize and uh, patronize the Christian church. So in 391, uh, Emperor uh, Theodosius issued an edict banning all expressions of paganism throughout the empire. Mm. So in 395, the Olympic Games were suppressed as their athletic nudity was an offense to Christianity. 
Um, so, um, of course, that um, diminished the uh, the real uh, spectator value of attending the games. Uh, <laughs> now, around this time, too, the Delphic Oracle fell silent. Thank goodness, I thought he would never shut up. Was he, it a she? I think it was a she, right? I think it was a she. Uh, yeah. So why why did the uh, the Oracle fall silent? Was this? This was actually because of the the new religion. They, oh, they were trying yeah. to suppress yeah. the old sort of the old gods and the old way of life. Do you think she was relieved? Yeah, I'm sure it's like, I got nothing to say. Like, I've been anything to say for, like, thousands of years. Yeah, so, like, yeah. Um, I don't know. what. Are, like, she, wasn't, she wasn't a thousand years old. Well, <laughs> so there's different, there different oracles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, but what did the oracle do all day? Like, you know, uh, she probably had a really nice hot tub. They just waited. They kept busy. They yeah. kept busy, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, that's fantastic. So now, in uh, 435, the Parthenon and the Erection on the Acropolis became churches. So as you can see, this whole transition is taking place. However, this did not eradicate pagan teaching. Uh, philosophy and law continued to be taught at the Academy in Athens, which was founded by Plato in 385 BC, until prohibited by em- Emperor Justinian in 529. So that famous academy that, that was mentioned previously had still been going on for this, for this long, which is extraordinary. Uh, now, in 395, the Roman Empire split into Western and Eastern Empires, and in 476, Rome fell to the barbarians. As the Dark Ages settled on Western Europe, Byzantium inherited the sole mantle of the empire. So, moving into uh, the into mid millennium, sure. um, we have the Ottoman rule. Yeah. Uh, by fourteen hundred, uh, the Ottomans had conquered all of Byzantine Greece. So eventually, the Greeks they got really fed up with Ottoman rule. Um, in spring eighteen twenty one, almost the entire settled Muslim population of Greece. Farmers, merchants, and officials were slaughtered within weeks by roaming bands of Greek peasants armed with swords, guns, scythes, and clubs. They were often led by Orthodox priests, and some of the earliest Greek revolutionary flags actually portrayed a cross over a severed Turkish head. Wow, that is sending quite the message. With the aid of these Western powers, Greek independence was confirmed in 1832. So now let's flash forward to the modern-day Greece. Um, Greece was eventually uh, entered into the European Union. Uh, at the time of entry to the Euro, it was an open secret that the figures had been massaged to ensure Greece met the strict criteria, and the extent of the, that fix only became apparent later. The Olympics had also incurred massive debts, and a complete lack of legacy planning has left many venues to rot. Oh, These are sad. the 2004 sad. Olympics. Yeah. Uh, in 2015, Greece defaulted on its bailout loans and was threatened with Grexit, oh, removal man. from the Eurozone. Well, so let's hope that the, uh, the great oracle Adelphi uh, will, will prophesize uh, a prosperous Greece uh, rather than a, a Greek tragedy, as it were. And with that, that concludes uh, a brief time of history. So let's take a break and we'll return with a travelogue. Okay, welcome back. Uh, this is now the travelogue section of the podcast, where we uh, speak to travelers uh, who have gone to these destinations. Um, Andrew, you've actually uh, you've been to Greece recently. Yes, yeah, sir. Uh, why don't you Great give time. us some highlights? All right. Well, uh, so uh, first uh, few nights uh, were in Santorini. Um, Stayed uh, in uh, Fira, uh, right on the uh, right on the Caldera cliff side, uh, and uh, I'd say one of my favorite parts was the hike 
from uh, Fira, which is sort of in the, the middle of the island, but still along the caldera. Uh, then uh, the hike up to Ia, which is at the tip of the island, the northern tip of the island. Uh, and that's where you get your classic, like, the blue domes with the sunset and the caldera cliffside, all that stuff. We actually we hiked, uh, basically, to see the sunset at Ia. Uh, we got there right, right in the nick of time as the sun was setting, and we're just... There's just a mad rush mm. uh, to this one location, uh, but it was so crowded that we had to like duck into an alleyway and like basically see the sunset from like behind a building. Mm. Uh, it was weird. It was a weird moment because I, I hear like a a rooster crowing at a sunset. Hmm. Is that a Greek thing? Do Greek yeah. roosters crow yeah, I think, at the yeah. sunset instead of the sunrise? Yeah, I've read that. Yeah. Yeah, I've read East versus West uh, differences. Certainly. So uh, yeah, it's like how the the water swirls. Yes. Um, different directions. <laughs> certainly. Different, different certainly. Hemispheres. So uh, tell us some more about the uh, your itinerary. Yeah. So uh, that we spent some time in Athens. Uh, I would say favorite part gotta be the the live music uh, in Plaka. Uh, really in Plaka itself. So, uh, Andrew, if you could only relive five minutes of the trip, which five minutes would those be? Uh, interesting. So, uh, okay, so I would say, so as, as I talked about that hike from, uh, from Fira to Ia, there was a part in that hike that was like where we actually saw the sun setting, and sort of just in the middle of nowhere, more of like a desolate area, and I would say that was remarkable because you can see mm. Ia in the distance and sort of the domes and everything from there, but it's like the solitude, this like quietness, Pure sunset. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm not saying I cried, but I'm not saying I didn't cry. <laughs> uh, I would say another another one for me that was also um, uh, was great was, um, you know, when we, when we were in Ia, uh, uh, after the sunset, we were, we were walking around, um, and I remember uh, finding this, like, old, tiny bookstore. Um, and I was I went down there, and there was this, like, you know, it's, it had all those like, classic books, like original prints of like classic novels, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't know anything about books or reading, so it <laughs> yeah, doesn't yeah. mean much to me. Right. But I did ask about, you know, do you have the, the Timaeus and Critias? So I was like, mm. oh, maybe there's some cool old, you know, text of it or some mm. uh, grand looking version of it. Of course, the, the snooty guy working there, like, rolls his eyes at me because he knows exactly why. Mm. He knows I'm not a great scholar of Plato. He knows I like you know, yeah. Atlantis and weird alien yeah. stuff and yeah. crazy things, right? It's probably the fanny pack. That <laughs> certainly. certainly. Um, and my uh, tinfoil hat. Um, <laughs> so, but it was great to be in Santorini reading about uh, Plato's accounts of Atlantis and mm. what could very well be the exact location that he's talking about. For me, that was a very... Powerful and exciting moments. Right. Okay, so obviously you had some really good times in this trip. Can you share with us the scariest moment you had in Greece? Oh, yeah, certainly, certainly. Okay, so first, uh, while in uh, Santorini, on the way from Fira to Parisa, Parisa is like a black sand beach, right? Uh, We're in the van uh, with the driver. um, And like weirdly, like uh, the Celine Dion version of Feliz Navidad is playing. Mind you, this is like in October. (laughs) Right? Uh, and all of a sudden, we hear a loud thud. Uh, the driver basically had hit and killed a dog and just kept on going, right? Wow. Okay, so first, it's like a bad sign, right? Like, we, we, we murdered a dog and just kept on... Yeah. Well, he, he stopped, mumbled something in Greek, and then just kept on going, right? Mm. Had no real concern, right? But then later, while at the beach, right, I was chased by these dogs and could only escape by jumping in the water. I was terrified. I scream and jump into the ocean, right? Um, 
And it was as though I was cursed by Cerberus for the murder of that you dog. Were. I you swear. were. I swear. I swear. They were. I, it, I felt it was a, a three-headed dog beast attacking me. It's funny because from other reports I've gotten from that incident, sure. these were very small. Well, you don't have any evidence. You have no dog. evidence of it, do you? So, so don't talk about things you don't know anything about, okay? <laughs> so now we'll get to the last segment of our show called The Four F's of Cultural Survival. Fiction, film, food, and fun. So with fiction, we're going to stick with the classics. And we're going to to highlight Homer's The Iliad and The Odyssey. The Iliad concerns itself semi-factually with the late Bronze Age War of the Achaeans against Troy in Asia Minor. The Odyssey recounts the hero Odysseus's long journey home. Interesting. So yeah, let's talk about the the, the Iliad, right? That's what? That's what? Helen of Troy, Paris. That's Helen of Troy? Yeah, basically, it's uh, Paris gets involved with one of the goddesses, mm. uh, and they promise him the most beautiful woman in the world. Mm. So he goes and has to kidnap, uh, basically kidnaps uh, Helen of Troy, and that's right. what sparks the whole thing. Right. So how? Um, I mean, real talk here. Like, sure, was sure. was Helen of Troy like was she hot? Ooh, that that. Is a question for the ages. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's hard. Like she was, she launched oh, a thousand ships. Mm. Uh, their face, uh, I, I don't know. I'm were not people them. uglier back then. People were much uglier. They were hideous, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, which sure Medusa must have been real bad. Yeah. Yes. If she if she was the ugliest person in ancient Greece, right? Oh right. my gosh. Yeah. I think, yeah, she was probably pretty good looking. I mean, it's just you know, it, it's weird when you look at photographs of like your earliest photographs. Yeah. Everyone's like really ugly. Oh, everyone's ugly. Like, People have only been not ugly in the last fifty to seventy-five years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What? Why? What do you think? Uh, nutrients, um, mm, probably yeah. genetically modified. Um, yeah. Food stuffs. <laughs> yeah. All those food stuffs. Certainly, certainly. Um, all right. Well, uh, let's move on to film. Uh-huh. Uh We're going to highlight Zorba the Greek. Yes. Uh, made in nineteen sixty-four. Uh, classic. classic. It's the story of an uptight English writer traveling to Crete on a matter of business. Uh, he finds his life changed forever when he meets the gregarious Alexis Zorba. Yeah, and this is famous, you know, the, the Zorba dance, or the, the song. Um, and he's just sort of, he's this gregarious guy, he's fun-loving, and just lo- the, the, he has a love for life. It sort of sets the 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 very deeply racist stereotype of a, of the happy-go-lucky uh Greek that mm. has no real yeah. real concerns of any <laughs> any serious matters. Right. Uh, so uh, this brings us uh, to our uh, food uh, section here. So uh, my recommendation uh, for my travels would be uh, in Athens, a restaurant called uh, Paradoseco, uh, and this is for great traditional fare, a no frills taverna on the periphery of Plaka. Uh, now, Brendan. We've, we've traveled through the ages, okay? But we're going to close out this episode uh, with, with, a, with a beautiful song. Um, there's, a, there's a genre of Greek music known as Ibekika, kind of a serious, kind of sad sort of music. Mm. Uh, but uh, one of its, uh, its greatest uh, artists is uh, Dimitri Mitropanos. And I want to close out with his classic hit, Rosa. Tahili <laughs> Muxera και διψασμένα γυρεύουνε στην ασφαλτό νερό 
τρόχο φόρα και εσύ μου λες μας περιμένει μόρα και με τραβάσε καμπαρέ υγρό Βαδίζουμε μαζί στον ίδιο δρόμο 